If you have a Bible, turn with me to uh, Matthew chapter 8. Uh, we just finished a, a long series through the book of Acts that lasted several months. And then next week, we're going to begin a new four-week series called What Jesus Prayed. Uh, you may recall, and I certainly don't expect you to, but when we preached through the, the Gospel of John in 2020, the way that Easter and Good Friday kind of fell on the calendar, we had to skip John 17, and I promised that we would come back to it, and we're going to come back to it next week, and we're going to look at what was it on the heart of Jesus that he prayed for? What was it that sort of woke him up in the morning, so to speak? What was it that weighed on him? What was it that he pleaded with God to do? So that'll be uh, next week, um, but today... I want to consider from the text what God's salvation looks like. That is to say, uh, what is the nature of saving faith and what are the consequences of rejecting it or neglecting it? A lot of people say, oh yeah, I believe in Jesus. Of course I believe in Jesus. Of course I have faith in Jesus. And some people actually say, well, I've always believed in Jesus. But they're not treasuring Jesus. They're not becoming like him together in the context of the church. They've, they're not gathering with God's people on a regular basis. They're not actively obeying Jesus' commands. They're not telling anyone else about Jesus. What, what do we do with that? What does saving faith look like? I don't know how it is in the neighborhood that you live, live in, but uh, in my neighborhood, people love Halloween. I mean, I've, I've never seen, I've lived in a lot of places, I've never seen anything like this before. Some of my neighbors start putting up Halloween decorations in September. They're, they're decorating for Halloween. Let me just show you what my uh, neighbor's house looks like across the street. Um, I don't know if you can see it by the picture. This is this really their house. And they have, they have 12 uh, skeletons, two of which are over 10 feet tall. They have uh, 21 skulls along the sidewalk. Um, that's a lot of skulls. I'm not judging them, but I'm just saying that's a lot of decorations for Halloween. People in my neighborhood, and you just go down the street, you see these, these decorations throughout the neighborhood. But I've not heard one person mention the other holiday that actually falls on today that Pastor Chris mentioned um, on October 31st, which is a very, very important holiday in the life of the church, the Big C Church, the, the Universal Church, the Historic Church. It has nothing to do with putting on costumes or going door-to-door -door collecting candy or carving jack-o'-lanterns, not that there's anything wrong with any of those things, but this is a very important holiday in the life of the church. Today is Reformation Sunday. Today we celebrate the single act, or at least the, the public act, that started the Protestant Reformation on October 31st, 1517. So uh, some 504 years ago, uh, there was this incredible demonstration this courageous act, which ultimately gave birth to every Protestant denomination uh, in the world that exists, including uh, Southern Baptists, which we are. So what was that act? Well, in a little town of Wittenberg, Germany, on the aforementioned date, an Augustinian monk, monk uh, who was also a Bible professor at the new university in Wittenberg, or Wittenberg, depending on how sophisticated you are, and he nailed a piece of parchment on the door of the castle church, which contained on it 95 theses. These were short sentences about God, about the church, about Jesus, about the Pope, and so on. Um, and Luther's hope in posting these 95 theses was that they would be, they'd be noticed and read, uh, in particular, by the Archbishop Albert of Mainz, and that they would bring about repentance 
and reform in the church. Now, you might be thinking, why was repentance and reform necessary? Well, I mentioned a moment ago, we just finished this study through the book of Acts, and in the book of Acts, we see uh, detailed the, the birth of the church, the birth and the expansion of the church as the risen Christ works by His Spirit through the apostles to, to spread the gospel, to expand the gospel witness all over the known world. And that expansion continued, of course, beyond the first century. Actually, that the expansion of the church continues even today. The church continually is expanding, um, despite, though, some really dark periods. For about a thousand years, between 500 A.D. and 1500 A.D., the church began a slow decline away from an emphasis on the glory of God and salvation and into a focus on man's responsibility, man's efforts, and human authority. One uh, well-renowned historian describes what happened this way. He says, throughout the Middle Ages, from the 6th to the 16th centuries, a great burden of religious effort and spiritual performance was laid upon believers as necessary for grace to work in their lives. So that mindset, again, we, there were a thousand really, really dark years. I mean, some of those uh, decades worse than others. Um, but this mindset, we might say, reached a fever pitch or reached ahead in, in the early 1500s to the point where not only had the gospel been perverted, in many respects, lost, but there was corruption in the church, the abuse of authority in the church, the word of God had been diminished in its priority, and greed, frankly, had taken hold of those who served in the church. So at the heart of the Reformation was really four basic questions. How was a person saved? Who has ultimate authority in the church? What is the church? And what does the Christian life really look like? How does a person live who is in Christ? And in answering these questions, the Protestant reformers developed what would be known as the five solas. Sola being the Latin word for alone. Here they are. Sola scriptura, which is scripture alone. Scripture is our final authority, as Pastor Chris mentioned. Not tradition, not the church, not one person's hobby horse. Scripture alone. Sola fide, faith alone. We are justified by faith alone. Made right with God by faith, not by works Solus Christus, Christ alone, at the heart of the gospel. The heart of the gospel is really not about us, but about Christ for us. Sola gratia, grace alone. Salvation is God's work from beginning to end. Nothing we achieve, nothing we deserve, nothing we earn, nothing we merit. And of course, all that leads to sola dea gloria, glory to God alone. God is the one who gets all the praise, worship, and glory for our salvation, not just our salvation, but everything else in life. It's all, uh, he gets all the credit, all the praise, all the glory. Now, as much as I might enjoy it, some of you would enjoy it along with me, some of you would not. Uh, this morning is not going to be a history lesson. I don't believe that Sunday mornings are for history lessons. Uh, when the church gathers on the Lord's Day, which we've done today, uh, I believe what we're called to do is to exalt and enjoy and proclaim Jesus Christ to the glory of God the Father, uh, not do history lessons. Um, but as I mentioned, this being this holiday, this very important day in the life of the church, Reformation Sunday, it's a good time, especially since we're in between series, to look at 
the beauty of God's salvation and the nature of saving faith, the saving faith that the reformers sought so boldly to protect. And so let's think of it this way. This is not a message about the Reformation, but this is a message from the Scriptures uh, inspired by uh, the Reformation. So Matthew chapter 8, we're going to look at verses 1 through 13 this morning. Uh, Let me begin by reading verses 1 through 4. When he came down from the mountain, he being Jesus, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. So a little context. So if you're new with us, we're usually in a book of the Bible, going through it kind of section by section. But here we're kind of parachuting into Matthew 8. And let me just tell you what's going on. Jesus has just finished his Sermon on the Mount. And this has been some of his most poignant and pointed material. And yet, despite the controversial nature of it, people are still following him, and they're hanging on his every word. The, ca- the crowd continues to grow, following him down the mountain where Jesus will then begin his healing ministry. And Matthew tells us very matter-of-factly that a leper came to him. Now, in 2021 uh, North America, we don't really recognize, we don't fully grasp just how scandalous, how incredible that this was to have a leper approach Jesus or have a leper approach anyone for that matter was a hugely controversial event. Leprosy, as as you probably heard, was not just one disease, but it was kind of a a catch-all term for a number of skin diseases, a variety of diseases, and it was a despicable thing in Palestine. And for the one who had leprosy, there was really zero hope of actually being close to anyone uh, of good health. Lepers were required to have disheveled hair and clothes and to cover the lower part of their face and shout, unclean, unclean, if they were to come in contact with anyone. Uh, Even from a distance, they shouted this out, which, of course, when people heard this, they would scatter. If If you saw a leper coming near you, you would turn and go the opposite direction. You didn't want to be around a leper for a variety of reasons. But Matthew describes this scene very casually as if this happens all the time. It didn't. It didn't happen. This has to go right up there with some of the great understatements uh, of recent years. Like when 19th century explorer Robert Falcon Scott, who was a Royal Navy officer, he wrote a message to his wife explaining that he and his traveling companions were stranded in Antarctica in sub-zero temperatures. They were completely out of food. Two of their companions were dead, and they were all about to die. He wrote to his wife, Well, dear, I want you to take this whole thing very sensibly, as I'm sure you will. That's an understatement. He should have screamed in all capital letters, We're going to die soon. There's no hope for us. You ever seen the movie uh, Titanic? Of course you have. You know, gross like, I don't know, a billion dollars or more. Well, when Sir Cosmo Golden, who was one of the few survivors of the Titanic, was asked what it was like to see so many people drowning around him, going, being submerged under the cold water on that faithful night, he said, you know, it was a very serious evening. 
Again, this is another example of understatement, right? This is what Matthew's doing here. This is an extreme understatement. Just to say so simply that a leper came to Jesus. This was a huge deal. But this leper approaches Jesus and doesn't announce his uncleanness, doesn't shout unclean, but instead says to Jesus, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. Now, this is a beautiful expression of what saving faith really looks like. Notice first the leper says, Lord, which means he confesses Jesus' authority. And then he says, if you will, conceding salvation is not something we demand. It's not something we deserve. It's not something that we go and insist upon as if we have a right to it. But it's something we plead God for, plead with God for. And finally, the leper says, you can make me clean, which is a declaration of his absolute confidence in Jesus' ability alone to cleanse him. Now, Jesus, of course, knew that he could make him clean. Jesus didn't need this affirmation by this leper. Jesus also knew that because he had compassion, he intended to. But Jesus did something that the leper never expected. Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him. Now, please understand, people just didn't do this. If a leper was approaching you screaming unclean, you ran in the opposite direction. You wanted to maintain a safe distance. Jesus touches him. To touch a leper was to be rendered unclean yourself and perhaps even contract the same disease that the leper had. But Jesus, as we've seen so often, he rarely does what we would expect him to do. Moved with deep concern, Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him. Jesus felt the man's pain. Jesus had compassion on the man. He was burdened by the lepers, not just the disease, but also the lepers' isolation. He was compelled by compassion for the man to whom no one else would dare come close. Jesus came near to the one that everybody else had written off, the one that everybody else had little time for, and Jesus immediately cleansed him. Jesus says in verse 3, be clean. Again, this is, a, this is the quintessential picture of God's salvation. The gospel is Jesus reaching out and healing those who have absolutely no other hope. No hope for cleansing. No hope to be placed into a community. This is an illustration of God's identifying and initiating love for the loveless. Jesus latches on to those who have no other hope. He reaches out and touches the leper. And as Frederick Dale Bruner says very succinctly, the gospel is in that grasp. Now going back to the Reformation, what infuriated Martin Luther so much and really what prompted the, the, the posting of the 95 theses on the, castle, uh, the door of the castle church was uh, that salvation, the gospel had become so twisted Salvation had become so twisted, it actually had become about man making his way to God by any series of efforts, by uh, doing enough or by praying enough or by giving enough. In fact, under the Dominican priest Johann Tetzel, the church was actually selling forgiveness as a way to, uh, to finance the renovation of St. Peter's Basilica in Rome and the Sistine Chapel. So if you wanted to be forgiven, if you wanted to be made right with God, if you wanted to gain entrance into the presence of God, you had to pay for it literally. And the worse your sin, the higher the payment. 
So Martin Luther was incensed by all of this, recognizes this is the opposite of the way the New Testament talks about God's salvation. All of these examples of Jesus healing folks, and we're just looking at one this morning, uh, we'll, we'll look at a couple, but they're meant to illustrate for us what God's salvation is truly like. And here's what it is. This is our first point. Salvation is God coming near to us in Christ and cleansing from all guilt, shame, filth, and disease. Salvation is not about us working our way to God. It's not about us cleaning ourselves up. It's not about us doing enough, serving enough, giving enough in order to please God. Salvation is God coming near to us in Christ and by His mercy and because of His love cleansing us from all guilt, shame, filth, and disease. This is what God does for all of those who put their faith in Jesus Christ. He rids them of all stain. The stain of past sins, the stain of secret sins, the stain of sins that uh, we think are beyond God's grace to cleanse. If you've run to Jesus in faith, God sees you this morning as perfectly clean. In fact, if you could see yourself the way God sees you, you wouldn't even recognize yourself. Because when God sees you, He looks at you as you're perfect, just like Jesus. It doesn't matter how someone else sees you this morning. It doesn't matter what somebody else has said about you at home, at school, at work, in your neighborhood. It doesn't matter the flaws that others are so quick to point out. The Creator of the universe sees you this morning as perfect in Christ. Now, that's the sort of news that when you experience that, when you experience that kind of forgiveness, that sort of cleansing, that you want to tell everybody about it. But Jesus, incredibly, remarkably, tells this leper, don't tell anyone. First in verse 4, verse four he says, say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for proof to them. Well, there was no healing power in the ritual that Jesus asked the man to do. It was simply giving proof of what had already been done. For the healed person to show himself to the priest was a fitting expression of gratitude in keeping with the law, but it didn't do anything. The law was powerless to heal. The law was powerless to save. But Jesus does what the law cannot do. He brings total restoration and healing to this man. And then he tells him not to tell anyone. The reason he did that is because Jesus didn't come to gather large crowds. He didn't come to attract a huge following. He didn't come to be this miracle worker that everybody followed to be fed and to see these incredible things take place. Jesus came to preach the gospel of the kingdom. And he starts by making that salvation, kingdom salvation, known by the most despised of all the society the lepers. Now look at who he encounters next. Look at verses 5 through 13. When he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, 
he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion, Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. It's no coincidence that Matthew tells us first of Jesus meeting with the leper who was marginalized, disrespected, unwanted in society. He had no weight, no standing. In the next, Jesus, uh, Matthew describes Jesus' exchange with a very powerful soldier who had great weight in society. This was a man of influence, the name Centurion, as we talked about a couple of weeks ago. You know the word century means 100, means he had at least 100 soldiers under his authority. But this man comes to Jesus and he pleads with Jesus on behalf of his son. Now, the, the, the Greek word uh, pays, is translated servant here, but um, elsewhere in Matthew's gospel, he uses the word doulos for servant. And so um, this is a word that... that typically refers to boy. It's a word that's translated boy. And so I believe that we should best consider that this is his son that the centurion is appealing for. It doesn't really matter that much, I guess, but it does uh, indicate the sense of urgency here. And I've actually had multiple conversations this week, even one this morning, uh, actually, with parents who have a child that's really struggling. Uh, some have indicated a struggle that's emotional, a physical struggle, uh, a spiritual struggle. And I have listened to parents as they express their hurt and their grief and their concern, and my heart hurts with them. No parent wants to see their child struggle. It's heartbreaking. What do we want to do? We want to fix it. I want to do whatever I can to fix this. I don't want my child to suffer. Well, here with this centurion, his son is dying. He's been paralyzed by disease, and this powerful man who's used to telling people do this and they do it, there's nothing he can do. He can't fix it. And the boy's father comes to Jesus with his grief, and he says, my son is suffering terribly. And you can see the anguish on his face. The starting point is just a very simple confession to Jesus of his burden. This man has a problem that nobody else can fix. But he knows that Jesus can. And Jesus says that he has not seen this kind of faith in all his travels throughout Israel. What this man actually does is show us, and I think you know, in, in God's uh, great wisdom, every generation to follow, what's at the heart of saving faith. What is the, the starting point, we might say, of, of saving faith? And here, here it is. This is our second point. Saving faith is the recognition that I have an impossible problem that only Jesus can solve. But it's one that Jesus can remedy immediately. Yeah, I have a problem, and it doesn't matter what doctor I go to, what counselor I go to, what friend I go to, what wise advisor, I have a problem that nobody else can fix. I have a problem that nobody else can solve, but there's a recognition immediately that Jesus can solve it, and he delights in solving it, and he will solve it immediately. Have you ever gotten a compliment that just left you beaming 
you know, it's, it's nice to get a good compliment. And maybe somebody said something about uh, how you look or, or your style or, or something you've done, something you've accomplished, and, and they gave you a real compliment on it, and it just made you feel good. I got an, an email on Friday morning from somebody I've never talked to before in, in Colorado um, who'd been watching our services online and just said the nicest thing to me by email. And I said to Janine, I, I, can go, I think I can go all day on that compliment. It just, it, it just meant so much to me and um, actually kind of made up for a bit of a backhanded compliment I had received just a couple days before that where someone said to me, someone looked at me and said, that color looks really good on you. You don't look so washed out like you do in most of your shirts. And I, I mean, I had no idea. Like, that's one of those times like, uh, thank you, I guess. I don't know. But, you know, you, you get this, you get an affirming word. You get a compliment, and that can go a long way, can it? Well, how about a compliment from Jesus? How about a word of affirmation? What about being noticed by Jesus for something that Jesus says he's not seen anywhere else he's gone? When Jesus hears this centurion's request, Jesus says that in all his travels, he's not seen this kind of faith. Now, that would be very encouraging to hear, wouldn't it? Matthew tells us that Jesus actually marveled at this man's faith. Of course, that begs the question, why? What, what was so great about it? What, what stood out? And I think the answer really is in verse 8. Verse 8, the centurion says, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. A key phrase in this whole story here is the one the centurion just uttered, I am not worthy. Now I want to talk about what that means, but first let me talk about what it doesn't mean. Notice the centurion is very honest about who he is and his rank. This is a man of great prominence. In fact, he's very quick to say, look, I, go to, I say to someone, go, and they go. I say to someone, jump, and they say, how high? I say to someone, do this, and they do it. He doesn't say to Jesus, well, you know, nobody really listens to me anyway. I'm a piece of dirt. I'm a horrible person. I can't get anybody to do anything. I say to people, do this, they just stare at me. They don't do what I say. He doesn't display even an inkling of this false humility. He doesn't say, I'm the last person in the world who should be in this leadership position. Sometimes I think in Christian circles, we assume that the essence of humility is engaging in this constant sort of self-bashing. I'm a terrible person. I, I, I never do anything right. Don't give it to me because I'll just mess it up. I'm worthless. But this is actually an unbiblical notion. Every single person is an image bearer of God and therefore of great worth. Every single person, regardless of age or academic training or skin color or background or family lineage or any accomplishment or lack of accomplishment, is of tremendous value to God. And God has gifted us in unique and special ways. You have talents and skills that I don't have. And I may have strengths that you don't have. We don't do God any favors by denying his gifting in our lives or by constantly asserting that we're worthless and can't do anything right. Every single person is of great worth to God. And this is a point I'm going to make on Wednesday night when I teach our students on what the Bible says about abortion. 
So every single person is of great worth to God. The problem, though, comes when we start to believe that we're spiritually good, that we have some goodness within us that's enough to offer to God in exchange for His salvation or some sort of blessing from Him. Even though we're all what we call ontologically good, which is a big word, just, just means in our being, our very essence, we're, we're good at the level of our being, we are spiritually bankrupt. We have violated God's law. We have revolted against our Creator. We have failed to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And we have incurred against God a moral debt that we can never pay. And because of the sin that has infected us, we have nothing good in us by which we can say to God, God, look at what I'm giving to you. Now, now you owe me salvation. In fact, even our motives are stained with self-interest. And because of our rebellion, what we deserve rightly is God's judgment. Theologically speaking, we are completely unworthy of God's salvation. We're unworthy of God's merciful healing. That's actually the fundamental realization of saving faith. And the centurion in this passage, he understands this. He says to Jesus, I'm not worthy. It is because he understands his own brokenness. He understands his own rebellion. He understands the impurity of his own motives. He recognizes Jesus' power and authority uh, juxtaposed with his own unworthiness. And because of that, Jesus, that recognition, Jesus actually marvels at his faith. I mentioned at the beginning of this message that the number of folks that we come in contact with who claim to have faith and they, they claim to believe in Jesus and they claim to, to know Jesus, but they're not really treasuring Him. They're not delighting in Him. They're not resting in the gospel. They don't make it a priority to worship Him, to be part of His, uh, his body. They're not broken over their sin. Well, true saving faith begins with the recognition of our monumental and unsolvable problem, at least in our own ability. Saving faith begins with an understanding of our predicament. We are in a situation that we have no power to solve. Saving faith understands what we need is a divine rescue. Not to tap into some inner strength or to find some inner beauty. Not to work harder or try or strive more. Not to do those things. Saving faith begins with a recognition that if we are to be rescued... It must come from outside of us, not from within. And that recognition of need, that understanding of our own brokenness in light of God's holiness is really the starting point for saving faith. But the faith that Jesus commends, it doesn't just end there with a recognition of need. It clings to Jesus as the only one who can actually help. One who is glad to help us. Now, of course, not everyone recognizes that need. Not everyone is undone by the holiness of God. Not everyone escapes God's judgment. Look at verses 11 and 12 again. Jesus continuing talking to his followers. He said, I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Here are two people excluded from Israel, ridden off by society, but welcomed into the kingdom of God. A leper and a centurion, both, again, outcasts in Israel. 
Just as the leper had limitations, he couldn't even enter Jerusalem. The centurion had limitations. He, he also could not enter Jerusalem because he was a Gentile. He could only go so far, only to the court of the ethne, the court of the Gentiles, the outermost court of the temple. He's not welcome. The leper's not welcome. The centurion is not welcome among the people of God, but they're welcomed in the kingdom of God. There are some so-called sons of the kingdom, Jesus says, though, who may have free reign in Israel, but who will nevertheless be cast into hell where there, there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, who are the sons of the kingdom to which Jesus alludes? This is a reference to, the, to ethnic Israel who had at that time those who were rejecting Jesus. Those who share, shared the same heritage as Jesus, the same fathers, if you will, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but those who would persist in their rejection of Jesus, Jesus as the long-awaited Messiah. These are the religious ones. They knew their Bibles and they had the Scripture memorized. These are the ones who read their Bible, but they never saw Jesus as the hero of it. These are the ones who said and did all the right things, but their hearts were not broken over their sinfulness. Many in Israel will face God's judgment because they will not come to Jesus. And of course, God's judgment is not reserved for a certain ethnic group or a certain people from a certain country. God's judgment is reserved for all who reject His Son. To those who cling to Jesus in faith, Jesus will ultimately wipe away every tear from their eyes. They will be welcomed into the presence of their Father where there will be no sin and no death and no disease. But those who insist on making it there on their own, for them there will be weeping that will never end. Here's our final point. The reality of judgment is not meant to frighten believers but to warn those who think themselves believers, but are resting in their own merits. When we read, if you're in Christ this morning, you read those judgment passages and you read about the weeping and the gnashing of teeth, that's not meant to scare you. The wrath of God was poured on Jesus on your account and on my account. So Christ died on the cross, the death that we deserve to absorb, to suffer the wrath of God so that we would not have to fear or worry about the wrath of God. But for those who go through life believing that, they've done enough, they're better than their neighbor, they've been to church enough, they've done whatever it is, those judgment passages are meant to warn them lest they think of themselves as righteous. The year I graduated from college, 1993, there was a comedian uh, by the name of Jeff, Jeff Foxworthy and uh, he kind of struck it rich by coining a, a series of statements that all began with the phrase, well, you might be a redneck if, right? You remember these? Don't act like you don't remember these, okay? I know you remember these. Uh, his album of the same name sold more than 3 million copies and made that particular phrase household uh, banter. And if you want to, I don't have any of them here in my notes. Some of you maybe can recite some of them. There were like 300 of them. And, um, and they, they were predicated on the notion that rednecks occupy the lowest uh, space in the hierarchy of social acceptance, right? So you might be a redneck if, and you know, all these things follow. And the thing was, you know, you're probably a redneck, but you may not even realize it. You don't really want to be a redneck because that's as bad as it can get. Well... 
I don't know if he's right or not on that, but I do know this. There are some things that are far worse than being a redneck. I know that for sure. Like, for example, being too good for Christianity. Chad Bird, who writes for uh, the ministry Christ Hold Fast, he offers a few decidedly non-comedic indicators that you might be too good for Christianity. Christianity is, after all, not for everyone. Here are his words. He says, if you've made such huge strides in your holiness that you deem grace a crutch for those still handicapped by sin, if you detect the faint applause of angels clapping their wings at your obedience, if you've led such an exemplary life that you've landed a spot on heaven's honor roll, then you might then you'll feel like you're slumming it in Christianity. Jesus calls poor, miserable sinners, not those who sport homemade halos. Jesus is the God of failures who bled between lawbreakers. If you've walled yourself in so you don't have to rub shoulders with people that could use a helping hand, a shoulder to cry on, a handout now and then, a listening ear, a whispered prayer, then Christianity will be a turnoff to you. The God who calls us to love our neighbor as ourselves will seem hopelessly out of touch with your insulated life of self-sufficiency. If you smile at the man in the mirror because by not smoking and drinking and womanizing and gambling and swearing, you've built up a moral bank account so fat with cash you could open a pawn shop of piety and lend out your righteousness to others, then you'll be scandalized by a father who sprints to throw his arms around the neck of the returning prodigal. Now, I could go on. It's pretty powerful stuff, but I, I believe Chad Bird is on to something. To, to be sure, Christianity is for those who realize they can't make it on their own. It's for those who realize that they've failed, infinitely failed, to satisfy God's perfect standard, to obey God's law in heart, in word, in deed. Christianity is for those who are so acutely aware of their moral and spiritual deficiencies that they see no hope except in being rescued by someone from outside, by someone who would dare love them so much that he would, he would reach down, that he would condescend and incline down to touch them. Christianity is not for everyone, but... If rich or poor, you realize that your moral bank account is destitute, that you have no righteousness of your own that would impress others, then like the leper or the centurion in today's chapter, you'll be amazed at this Jesus who, though he was rich, became poor for your sake. And though he was sinless, took on the wrath and the punishment of those who had sinned. You'll be amazed that, amazed that this Jesus would come to you and extend to you complete and utter and forever forgiveness with no strings attached, not asking us to earn our way or meet, us, meet him halfway. You'll be amazed that this God would condescend and show to you so much grace. This is how the centurion felt about Jesus. This is how the leper felt about Jesus overwhelmed by the grace of God in Jesus Christ. It's the same grace that the reformers fought so boldly to preserve 
And it's the same grace that you and I are resting in this morning. It is our only hope. Salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for, as Pastor Chris mentioned, those bold, courageous men through whom you worked to bring about repentance and reform to the church that you love. We know you didn't need Martin Luther and you didn't need John Calvin. You didn't need Ulrich Zwingli. You didn't need anybody. But you, in your mercy and your wisdom and your kindness, chose to use those reformers to bring about repentance and healing in the church. And we pray, Lord, that here we are, people, you know, we know you don't need us. We know you can make the rocks cry out of your salvation, should you so desire. But you've determined to use us. And I pray even this morning you would use us to encourage one another. I pray that you would use us to warn one another as necessary. I pray that you would use us to love one another and to forgive one another. And to tell those who haven't heard of the grace and mercy of you, God, our Father. Give us the courage and the compassion to do so. Thank you for the way that you, will, you have and will continue to protect your church, promising that not even the gates of hell shall prevail against her. We praise you for your faithfulness in Christ's name. Amen.